After 25 years in custody, countless movies and TV shows, and 26 victims under his belt, the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski is dead. This guy terrorized America for 17 years. But what exactly did he do to get so notorious? Let's recap. Ted Kaczynski is the infamous boogeyman everyone's heard of, but his crimes were so long ago that today no one's exactly sure about all the details of what exactly he did. Well, I'll tell you this. The man spent his life worried that technology would spark the end of the human race. In fact, he wrote a 35,000-word manifesto saying as much. It's only fitting that he died in 2023 as the news is filled with headlines and worries about a possible AI takeover. On June 10th, 2023, the 81-year-old was found hanging in his cell. Reports claim he died by suicide, but federal prison officials haven't released any further details. There's little love lost between the public and Ted Kaczynski. Most people consider him a lunatic and a madman and a domestic terrorist. But there are some people who put him on a pedestal for his opinions on technology and its impact on society. They see him as a genius ahead of his time. Let me tell you more about him so you can decide for yourself which side you fall on. The Unabomber story dominated headlines between 1978 and 1995. If you've ever joked about getting a bomb in the mail, it's because of Ted Kaczynski. It was the longest and most expensive manhunt in FBI history. So what exactly did he do to prompt a multi-decade $50 million investigation? To answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning. Theodore John Kaczynski was a boy genius. He grew up in 1940s Chicago in a loving, working-class family of Polish immigrants. When he was born, he was a happy, smiley baby. But at only nine months old, he developed a bad allergic reaction and spent a week in the hospital. And for some reason or another, the doctors told his parents he had to be mostly quarantined and they weren't allowed to see him for more than an hour or two during that time. Maybe the allergic reaction affected his brain development Or maybe he was always destined to go down the path he did. But whatever the reason was, after that hospital stay, Ted was never the same happy, loving child he started out as. When he was seven, his only sibling, David, was born. The boys were raised to love reading, school, and nature. David was also a bright kid, just not as bright as Ted. A few people are. Ted scored 167 on an IQ test in junior high, which led him to skipping a couple of grades. And for reference, Einstein and Stephen Hawking hovered around 160. As you might expect, Ted raced through school with straight A's, but no real friends. He fell head over heels in love with math and earned himself a scholarship to Harvard at 16 years old. Ted's time at Harvard was a critical turning point. He just wasn't emotionally prepared to handle the social aspect of college. He lived in a suite dedicated to the youngest and brightest incoming students, but he didn't bond with the other students, even though they were some of the only people on earth that might understand him. Instead, his roommates remember him playing the trombone at ungodly hours of the night. The stench of rotting food wafted from his room. That's where he spent most of his time, alone. If you're expecting to hear that Ted Kaczynski was the weirdest but smartest guy at Harvard, you'd be wrong. According to the New York Times, he got average grades and didn't leave much of an impression on anyone. Maybe that's partially because of what happened during his sophomore year. That's the year Ted got involved in a psychological experiment 
run by Harvard psychologist Dr. Henry Murray. Now, Dr. Murray was a pretty interesting character. If you've ever been asked to take a personality test when you're interviewing for a job, Dr. Murray probably helped create that test. During World War II, he helped the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, screen and select secret agents. He designed his tests to break men under pressure and find out how people react to extreme stress. He and his colleagues put test subjects through intense interrogations. We're talking super bright lights, high stress, humiliation, and belittlement. Now, some test subjects would crumble to pieces, and these hardened military men would be found crying hysterically. Dr. Murray took those experiments back to Harvard where he had test subjects write essays about their personal beliefs and aspirations. Then, someone would use their essay as ammunition to launch personal attacks on the subjects. Ted was subjected to intense verbal abuse and humiliation for those tests every week for three years. All in all, he spent 200 hours as part of the doctor's study. There's speculation that Dr. Murray's experiments were even part of MKUltra, the CIA's infamous mind control experiments. Now, after Harvard, Ted moved on to the University of Michigan, where he earned his doctorate in mathematics. And just like at Harvard, Ted kept to himself and focused on his studies. His dissertation called Boundary Functions was so complex, the New York Times quoted one professor as saying, maybe 10 or 12 people in the country understood or appreciated it. But while Ted looked like a social math whiz on the outside, he was questioning his gender identity on the inside. He actually scheduled a gender transition operation, but backed out in the waiting room. Ted was in turmoil. He considered killing the psychiatrist he was supposed to see and other people he hated in general. In his words, he felt disgusted by his uncontrolled sexual fantasies about being a woman. He felt humiliated and hated the doctor with every fiber of his being. Like a phoenix, he said he burst from the ashes of his despair to a glorious new hope. By 1969, at age 27, Ted had a good job teaching math at UC Berkeley, but one day, he resigned out of the blue. He was giving up math, he said. He wanted to get back to the quiet harmony of nature. You see, Ted's whole thing was that he hated technology. He saw a future where humans were forced to adapt to machines and society, not the other way around. And we're not talking about just a hatred of computers. He hated man-made machines like cars, airplanes, snowmobiles, and motorcycles, too. Anything that interfered with nature. He wanted nothing to do with the bleak future he predicted, so he built himself a cabin deep in the woods near Lincoln, Montana. This was no luxury log home. It was a plywood and tar paper 10 by 12 foot space with no electricity or running water. He added two windows for sunlight, but put them high off the ground so no one could see into the cabin. He read and wrote by the light of candles he made himself. He mostly survived off the land and wild animals he snared in traps. Once a month or so, he would ride his bike into town to pick up supplies and visit the post office and library. He looked like a wild mountain man who rarely said more than he needed to. But this is Montana, and he didn't stick out as that weird at all. The goal was to be off the grid and self-sufficient. His cabin cost him a couple of hundred dollars a year in property taxes, and any other cash he needed for supplies came from doing odd jobs and birthday and Christmas money his parents sent him. Ted wanted to spend the rest of his life in nature, but then his bitter rival, technology and big business, came knocking. 
Ted wasn't the only person to want to move to Montana to be closer to nature. Housing developments were getting closer and closer to his reclusive cabin. So, in 1975, Ted began booby-trapping and sabotaging the machines and job sites. Alone in the woods with his enemies on his doorstep, Ted spiraled deeper and deeper into his own head. The world was going to hell in a handbasket, and he needed to do something. Something bigger than disarming the land developers around his cabin. On May 24, 1978, someone found a package, addressed and stamped, in a parking lot at the University of Illinois. The return address was that of Northwestern University professor Buckley Christ Jr. But Professor Buckley never sent this package. He didn't trust it either. So, he called campus security to inspect the box. Then... Boom! It exploded in the guard's face, making him the Unabomber's first victim. Why did Ted target the University of Illinois and Northwestern? Because professors at both schools rejected an early manifesto of his. Thankfully, the security guard only suffered minor injuries and burns. Ted was good with explosives, but his devices weren't that deadly. Yet. The mail bomb was enough to get the FBI's attention, but nothing at the scene pointed them toward Ted. As far as they knew, someone was trying to hurt Buckley Christ. But who and why? Ted's next bomb went off about a year later on May 9, 1979. A grad student at Northwestern University's Technological Institute suffered minor cuts and burns when he opened what he thought was a gift. The bomb was hidden in a cigar box and left in a room shared by grad students. Six months later, on November 15, 1979, smoke filled the cabin of American Airlines Flight 444 from Chicago to Washington. The pilot was forced to make an emergency landing as passengers suffered from smoke inhalation. Ted rigged it to go off when the plane reached a certain altitude. Thankfully, it never exploded. Ted's next bomb in 1980 was addressed to the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood. It was hidden in a copy of Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. Why that book? Only Ted knows. It's about a man who finds himself on a teeny Coast Guard ship in Greenland chasing heavily armed German weather ships, according to Amazon. Now, when it exploded, it caused severe cuts and burns over most of Percy Wood's face and body. After four attacks, two on universities and two on airlines, Ted had the FBI's full attention. A 150-person joint task force dedicated their lives to the case. They codenamed it Unabomb, short for the University, UN, and Airline, A, Bombing, B-O-M. Newspapers ran with it, and the Unabomber was born. But Ted was smart. He built his explosives with junk you could find anywhere. He never left a fingerprint. He didn't even lick the stamps. But he made sure the feds knew the attacks were connected. His signature was F.C., Freedom Club. He marked his devices with those letters and sometimes even spray-painted them like graffiti near his targets. The feds tried to figure out how he was choosing his victims, but Ted was one step ahead. He randomly chose his victims after doing a little research at the library. None of them were connected to each other or Ted. Ted's next bomb popped up on October 8, 1981. Someone found a suspicious box wrapped in brown paper at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Luckily, the bomb squad was able to defuse it. On May 5, 1982, Ted sent a package to the head of computer sciences at Vanderbilt University. But the man's secretary was the one who opened it. 
she suffered severe burns to her hands and shrapnel wounds to her body. Two months later, an engineering professor at UC Berkeley opened a mail bomb that burnt his hands and face. The Unabomber laid low for the next three years while the FBI developed a theory about who they believed the Unabomber was. Here's what they came up with. He was smarter than most people, he was a loner, he hated technology, and he probably held a degree in something like math. Today, we know the FBI profilers nailed his description, but back in the early 80s, the powers that be started to doubt its accuracy. Allegedly, the profile was torn to shreds and they started looking for a blue-collar airplane mechanic. Four more mail bombs exploded in 1985. The first injured an engineering student at UC Berkeley. He lost four fingers and some vision in his left eye. In June 1985, an odd package showed up at the Boeing Fabrication Division in Washington State. It was detonated safely, but anything useful that might have led back to Ted was lost. Five months later, a psychology professor and his research assistant at the University of Michigan were injured when they opened a package holding a three-ring binder. The binder was actually an explosive. Both of them suffered burns and shrapnel wounds. The final 1985 device and Ted's first kill detonated on December 11th. It was a nail splinter bomb left at the back door of a computer store in Sacramento. It exploded and killed the store's owner, 38-year-old Hugh Scrutton. In February 1987, Ted targeted another computer store in Salt Lake City. The store's owner's son saw what he thought was a piece of lumber in the parking lot. When it blew, he suffered nerve damage in his left arm and had at least 200 pieces of shrapnel in his body. Now, an employee saw a man leaving the bomb in the parking lot. Her eyewitness account led to a rough sketch of a man with a mustache, auburn hair, wearing aviators, and a hoodie. That sketch would become synonymous with the Unabomber and make its way into pop culture notoriety. But when it came to actually catching the guy, it wasn't very helpful. Ted must have been a little worried he was getting sloppy. After all, he'd never had a witness before. So he took a step back, a big step. For six years, no one got anything explosive in the mail. And just when the feds thought their mad bomber was gone for good, in 1993, Ted sent a package to the home of a geneticist at the University of California. He lost his fingers when the package exploded. That same weekend, a computer science professor at Yale got a package in the mail. He lost vision in one eye, hearing in one ear, and a chunk of his right hand. Ted's final two bombs both resulted in death. On December 10, 1994, Thomas J. Mosier opened the mail in his New Jersey home. He didn't survive it. Why him? Thomas worked as an advertising executive for an agency that Ted thought once helped Exxon clean up its image after a massive oil spill. Then on April 24, 1995, Gilbert Murray, president of the timber lobby known as the California Forestry Association, died after opening a box sent to his office in Sacramento. After 17 years of terror, the FBI was no closer to catching the Unabomber. They might have never caught him if Ted hadn't made a mistake. In 1995, Ted sent a 35,000-word manifesto to the New York Times and the Washington Post. He wanted to cut a deal. If they published his work titled Industrial Society and Its Future, he would stop the bombings. By way of explanation, he wrote, the people we are out to get are scientists and engineers, especially in critical fields like computers and genetics. The goal was the destruction of the worldwide industrial system. 
To Ted, technology made life unfulfilling and caused widespread psychological suffering. Now, when you think about it, that's exactly what some people think about social media today. A lot of his industrial society manifesto talks about the left-wing politics of the time. Now, that said, Ted wasn't a fan of far-right ideas and conservatism either. He called them the fools who whine about the decay of traditional values, yet enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. The Times and Post didn't really want to publish Ted's manifesto. If they did it, then they'd be giving in to the demands of a terrorist. But the FBI and Attorney General Janet Reno urged them to publish it. They figured someone might read it and recognize the writing. Guess what? Their plan worked like a charm. Ted's writing spread across the country and eventually the world. It reached Linda Patrick, a philosophy professor on vacation with her husband in Paris. She jokingly told her husband, David, that the Unabomber's manifesto sounded like his crazy brother. David Kaczynski's heart fell into the deepest pit of his stomach. For the longest time, he had had a sneaking suspicion that his brother Ted was the Unabomber. He just didn't want to believe it, but now there was no ignoring it. David gathered as many old letters from Ted as possible and gave everything to the FBI. On April 3rd, 1996, the FBI raided Ted's tiny Montana cabin. They found a stash of materials for making more explosives, 40,000 handwritten notes about bomb making, and a live one ready to mail. After his arrest, some people believe Ted was also the Zodiac killer. Now, while there are some strange similarities, the FBI did not consider him a suspect. Robert Graysmith, who wrote the literal book, on Zodiac in 1986 said the similarities were fascinating but purely coincidental. Ted wanted to represent himself at trial, but the judge wouldn't allow it. Instead, his lawyers tried to paint him as insane. At least one prison doctor diagnosed him as paranoid schizophrenic. To Ted, an insanity plea was out of the question. Being labeled insane in front of the whole world would discredit his life's work. When his plea to fire his lawyers was rejected, Ted tried to hang himself with his underwear in his cell. The next day, he showed up in court with red bruising around his neck and no underpants. In January 1998, Ted pled guilty to all charges to avoid an insanity defense. He was sentenced to spend the rest of his life at the Federal Supermax Prison in Colorado without parole. While in jail, Ted befriended two other notorious terrorists you probably know, Ramsey Youssef and Timothy McVeigh. In 1993, Ramsey tried to blow up the World Trade Center. In 1995, McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. The three men stayed close friends until McVeigh was executed in 2001. In December 2021, 79-year-old Ted was diagnosed with late-stage cancer. He was transferred to a medical prison in North Carolina. Then, on June 10, 2023, he was found dead in his cell of an apparent suicide. Ironically, the Unabomber's death appeared next to headlines about the AI takeover and how tech like ChatGPT could start taking white-collar jobs. Following the news of Ted's death, Elon Musk responded to a tweet quoting the first line of Ted's manifesto. Elon and many others have voiced their concerns about rapidly evolving AI technology. Along with an article about Ted's death, the tweet read, The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Elon simply replied, He might not be wrong. What do you think? 
And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.